0: Martha and I have a house full of pictures and sayings and slogans just everywhere. In fact, we're in the process right now or going to this year remodel our house uh, somewhat. What we really need is more wall space because we need more room for grandchildren's pictures and all sorts of things. But we have uh, a number of things of saying, slogans, scripture, all kinds of things that uh, that help you. And We have one that's in a, in a less accessible area, not the kind of area you walk through a lot, and we have this uh, marvelous uh, piece of literature uh, framed there. And this last week, Martha said, how long has it been since you read this? I said, it's been years. She said, well, let me read it to you. And she read it to me, and I said, that's wonderful. It was wonderful the first time I read it years ago, and it's as fresh as ever reading it now. So I'm going to read it to you. It's by Robert Fulgham. You'll remember it. All I ever really needed to know, I learned in kindergarten. Most of what I really needed to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. Wisdom was not at the top of the graduate school mountain, but there in the sandbox at nursery school. These things I learned share everything, play fair, don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies and milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Learn some and think some and draw and paint and sing and dance and play and work every day some. Take a nap every afternoon. You can't do that in church here. It's not afternoon yet, you see. Wait a little later. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out into the world, watch for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. Be aware of wonder. Remember the little seed in the plastic cup? The roots go down and the plant goes up and nobody really knows how or why, but we are all like that. Goldfish and hamsters and white mice and even the little seed in the plastic cup, they all die. So do we. And then remember the book about Dick and Jane and the first word you learned. The biggest word of all. Look. Everything you need to know know is in there somewhere. The golden rule and love and basic sanitation, ecology and politics and sane living. Think of what a better world it would be if we all, the whole world, had cookies and milk about three o'clock every afternoon and then lay down with our blankets for a nap. Or if we had a basic policy in our nation and other nations to always put things back where we found them and clean up our own messes. And it is still true. No matter how old you are, when you go out into the world, it is best to hold hands and stick together. We need each other. The traffic is bad. We need to hold hands with each other. We need to stick together. And we need to let God's hand hold ours. There are a lot of fearful things that can happen out there in the world. And fear, as the U.S. News and World Report said, is the dominant emotion in America. Fear. Well, we need to know God's hand is upon us. And that we can hold hands with one another and that we can stick together when we go out in the heavy traffic of everyday living. Marvelous passage of scripture that I want to speak about for a few moments this morning from the 43rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. And it's about dealing with fear, it's about dealing with the traffic, it's about dealing with the pressures that come upon us in everyday living. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Uh, Isaiah is, if you just take your Bible and open it right in the middle, chances are you'll hit Isaiah. The 43rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. These are marvelous words beginning in the first verse. Let me read them to you from the living Bible. But now the Lord who created you, listen to that. We're gonna talk about God creating us. The Lord created you, O Israel, says, don't be afraid. For I have ransomed you I have called you by name You are mine When you go through deep waters And great trouble I will be with you When you go through rivers of difficulty You will not drown When you walk through the fire Of oppression You will not be burned up The flames will not consume you For I am The Lord your God Your Savior, the Holy One of Israel. And then to the latter part of the fourth verse. You are precious to me and honored and I love you. Don't be afraid for I am with you. We didn't create ourselves. The world didn't begin when we were born. Way back in the dim, dark past, God created the world in beginning God. I don't know how familiar you are with James Weldon Johnson, marvelous writer of green pastures. He humanized God in such a beautiful and respectful way respectful way. And I want to quote a portion of what he said about creation. God walked around and God looked around on all that he had made. He looked on the sun. He looked at the moon. He looked at the little stars. He looked at the world and all the living things. And God said, I'm lonely still. Then God sat down on the side of a hill where he could think. By a deep, wide river, he sat down. With his head in his hands, he thought and thought and thought, I'll make me a man. Up from the bed of the river, he scooped the clay. And by the bank of the river, he kneeled down. And the great God Almighty, who lit the sun and fixed it in the sky, who scattered the stars to the farthest most point of the darkness, who rounded this earth in the middle of his hand, this great God, like a mother bending over her baby, kneeled down in the dust, toiling over a lump of clay. He fashioned it in his own image. He blew into it the breath of life and man became a living soul. We're nothing but lumps of clay. We're nothing but accumulated organized dust. And to whom the great God of the ages blew life. Created in his own image. Meaning that he created us with the capacity to think, to reason, to choose, to say yes, to say no. Not creating us as robots, but in his image to make decisions. And we made some. We made some. Though created by him with our free will, we decided to sell ourselves down the river of pride. Down the river of greed. Down the river of self-satisfaction. Down the river terrible destructive passions the waves of adversity swept over us cataracts of judgment pummeled us and we needed to be rescued the Lord who created you says, don't be afraid, for I have ransomed you. You went off on your own. You sold yourself down the river of personal desires, and I've bought you back. I've ransomed you. In that connection, you just cannot go any further without telling that time-worn, but always inspirational little story. I don't remember when I first heard it, but I've never forgotten it from the first day I heard it about the little boy who built his own boat, handmade. He fashioned it. He loved it, tenderly creating this little boat. And he went out to sail it in the river. And it got a little far out from the shore, too far for him to reach. And then it got caught up in the currents and it was carried away. And he ran down the bank as far as he could, couldn't get it and he saw it go over the falls and he thought it's gone, it's gone. Then a number of days later he was walking down the street in his little town and he passed the pawn shop and there in the window to his amazement was his little boat. He went in and said to the proprietor of the pawn shop that's my boat I made it. And the pawnbroker said, well, son, it may be, but I've invested some money in that. A person brought it in here and it's not in very good condition, but I'm going to try to sell it. And he said, well, how much is it? And the pawnbroker told him and he said, well, I don't have that much money. And the pawnbroker said, well, I'll, I'll hold it, give you a while to get enough money. So he went out, he did everything he could to get money. He mowed lawns, he carried out garbage, he ran errands. He did every little thing he could to accumulate enough money. Finally he had it, went back in there with great enthusiasm. Put the money there on the counter. The pawnbroker went over there and got the boat, gave it to him, gotten scarred up, needed some new paint, needed some new sails, needed a lot of things. But the little boy took that boat And he walked down the street holding it. And he said, you were mine once because I made you. You're mine twice because I bought you back. We're twice bought men and women. We're twice born men and women. We came into this world as an act of creation from God And we come to new life and to salvation and to forgiveness and to grace and to heaven because he bought us back at the cross, at the cross. Jesus paid it all to purchase our salvation. He ransomed us. And I have called you by name. I created you. I ransomed you. And I know your name. You're not a number. You're not a mass. You're not a group. You're an individual to God. He knows your name. How can he do that? Because he knows everything. You remember the story in the New Testament when Jesus was walking down the street of Jericho and the tax collector there was named Zacchaeus. He was the most detested, contemptible man in town. Nobody liked him. He'd sold out to the Romans. He was a Jew who was becoming a a, a tax collector for the Romans and he was gouging them and overcharging them and overtaxing them. And he was the most contemptible man in town, but he wanted to see Jesus. Now, I don't know where he heard about Jesus. We don't get any information on that. he heard about him somewhere. Maybe he heard about him from a fellow tax collector named Matthew, who when he became a follower of Jesus, gave a party and invited his friends to come. Well, tax collectors didn't have a whole lot of friends, so he may have invited Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus may have heard about Jesus through Matthew. I don't know. That's just conjecture. But he'd heard about him. He wanted to see him. And you know the story. He went down... Climbed a sycamore tree because he was a short man. He couldn't see over the crowd. So he climbed up in a tree so he could see Jesus. And Jesus was walking down the street, down the road. And he stopped there underneath that tree. The Bible says he came to the place. Boy, isn't that a tremendous statement? He came to the place. He's come to your place this morning. He's standing at the bottom of your tree. He looked up at Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus nearly fell out of that tree. And with a big smile on his face, I surely believe Jesus looked at Zacchaeus and said, Zacchaeus, come on down. I want to go home with you and have lunch. The most detested man in town, Jesus walked home with him. And I don't know what they talked about. You don't read it in the scripture. It was a private conversation. But something happened to Zacchaeus. He came out and started just throwing his money away. He says, "I have gouged you all. I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to pay you back four times what I what I have taken from you." Something happened. He'd heard his name, and he'd met the Savior. He wants to go home with you today. He wants to have lunch at your house. And he knows your name. Zacchaeus, Buckner, come on. Now, we we don't initiate our salvation. He does. So often we think, well, I called upon the Lord and he heard me. No, you know, the reason I called upon the Lord is because I was returning his call. He calls us. He calls us through memory. He calls us through influences. He calls us through circumstances. He calls us through things we heard as a child in Sunday school or church. He calls us through the words in the Bible. He calls us through preaching and through music. He calls us in multitudinous and multifarious ways. He has limitless ways to reach out and to call us, but he calls everybody for he came to save everybody and he calls you by name. He calls you. I hope you'll hear him today. And say, Yes, Lord, I've heard you calling, and I have I have that system where I can see that you have been calling me. That caller ID. I know you've been calling. Well, your number is on there, and the times you've been calling me are on there. I'm gonna call you back. He initiates our salvation. He creates within us a hunger for him. He created mankind with two hungers, hunger for bread and a hunger for water. We have to have those to live. We have to have physical bread and water to live. He also created us with a need for spiritual bread and spiritual water, which is why Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am. And the water of life. He created that within us. Pascal said, the existence of hunger presupposes the existence of bread. Well, the existence of hunger in your life presupposes the fact that God has the bread of life ready to serve it up on a platter in your home today. He begins it. He initiates it. He calls us. He created us. He started us in the first place. He's brought us back, ransomed us. He's called us and then he's promised in a marvelous way to strengthen us through the potential fears of today and tomorrow. We do not know what this year holds. Do we? We do not know. We don't know what the next hour holds. But God does. And listen to what he says to us today. When you go through deep waters and great trouble, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you, for I am the Lord your God your savior, the holy one of Israel. You're precious to me and I love you. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Three times he says, you're gonna go through and I'll be there. You're gonna go through and I will be with you. You're gonna go through and I will be with you. We do not know what fires of adversity may await us out there in 1998. We do not know what waters may engulf us. We do not know what it will be. But whatever it is, God will be there. And he will bring his people through. Triumphantly through. Now I want to share an idea on this that I really hope will help you. It's helped me to think about it, to talk about it to myself and to pray about it. The presence of God, when these troubles come, and we're engulfed by them, we say, where is God? Where is God when this tragedy came? Where is God when this difficulty came? Where was God when this sickness came? Listen, the presence of God is never to be estimated by our consciousness of his presence. The presence of God with us is never to be calculated on the basis of our awareness, consciousness awareness of God. When we can 't see him, we think he can 't see us the, pres- the The presence of God in your life and in mine is not a feeling in fact feeling is only used twice in the new testament and never in connection with our salvation the bible the bible spends very little emphasis very little stress upon our feelings but we calculate the presence of God so often on the basis of our feelings, on the basis of the way we feel. We are to calculate the presence of God with us not on the basis of feeling, but on the basis of faith in the promises of God. I will be with you. Now, let me give you a classic example of this from the third chapter of the book of Daniel. One of the great stories in the Bible that many of you are familiar with. The children of Israel were in bondage and Nebuchadnezzar, evil, depraved king was forcing the people to worship him, to worship the idol that he had created. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not worried about what will happen to us. They'd been told they were gonna be thrown into a fiery furnace within the hour. And they said, and what God can deliver you out of my hands then, said Nebuchadnezzar. And they said, well, we don't care what you think, Nebuchadnezzar. We're not worried about what will happen to us if we're thrown into the flaming furnace. Our God is able to deliver us and he will deliver us out of your hand, your majesty. But if he doesn't, please understand, sir, that even then we will never under any circumstances serve your gods or worship the golden statue you have erected. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So they heated the furnace seven times over and they threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in there and the heat was so intense that the men who threw them in there were burned to death. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to see what was happening to these three. 24th verse, third chapter of book of Daniel. But suddenly, as he was watching, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we throw three men into the furnace? Yes, they said, we did indeed, your majesty. Well, look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire and they aren't even being hurt by the flames and the fourth looks like the son of God. Then they brought him out of the fire. The princes and governors and captains and counselors crowded around them and saw that the fire hadn't touched them, not a hair of their heads was singed. Their coats were unscorched and they didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, my soul, what a God. For no other God can do what this one does. Nebuchadnezzar said. He said, well, Buckner, that's just a fable out of the Bible. Let me tell you something. I can stand right up here and I can look into the faces of dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people who have been through the furnace. The furnace of physical illness. The furnace of the death of a loved one. The furnace of a prison sentence. The furnace of a broken marriage. And I see God Walking around in your life. There is no indication that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were conscious of the presence of the fourth person with them. That can only be seen by others. But I know people right now, I'm looking into your face. And the strength that you exude, the courage that you demonstrate, the triumphant faith that you have, says to me, God's in their life. And they are more than conquerors. They face adversity and tears and a broken heart and shattered dreams. They face it victoriously as conquering sons of God. It's not a fable, my friend. It's sitting right there next to you. God has promised to be with his people. We may not be aware of his presence. We may not feel, but God's presence is not dependent upon our feelings. His, our faith takes hold and we believe him regardless of what others may think or say. Martin Luther was asked, Martin Luther was asked, do you feel that your sins are all forgiven? He said, no. I don't feel that my sins are forgiven. I know they're forgiven because God said it in his word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever feels like he is saved shall not perish but have everlasting life. You know that's not so. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Faith is simply taking God at his word. It's no magic formula, it's no esoteric kind of experience. Faith is simply saying, I take God at his word. Let me use an example. Wonderful, refreshing example I read in Robert Farrar Capon's fascinating book, The Astonished Heart. Suppose for a moment that I am in a hospital bed. I have a body cast on up to my waist. Both of my arms are in cast. I'm in all kinds of traction. I can't get up and go anywhere. And I am there in that hospital bed, worried to death about my house the roof is leaking, the walls are falling down, the paint is parting company with the walls. It's in a mess, I need new fixtures, all kinds of things are wrong at my house and here I am and I can't move, I can't do a thing about it. And a friend walks in and says, Buckner, I wanna tell you something. I've employed a contractor and I've overseen the job myself. And we put a new roof on your house. We fix the exterior. We remodel the interior. We put new fixtures in there. Man, your house is better than new. Now, I have two choices. I can either believe my friend or disbelieve my friend. I can either take his word for it or I can just lie there and worry and pray and try to pump my faith up to the boiling point hoping that somehow miraculously God will come down in a cloud and remodel my house. I can either do that and not have any peace, not have any assurance, not have any comfort or I can believe the one who stands beside me and says, I've done it. Friend, I choose to believe Jesus. He says, I fixed it. I have created you, I have ransomed you, I've called you by name, I'll be with you because I love you and I'm gonna take you with me forever and ever and I can just lie there and say, I believe you. I believe you. That's what faith is. And my friend, that's what it takes to be a Christian. You say, well, I don't feel like it. Feeling has nothing to do with it. It's the shallowest part of our personality. Our feelings fluctuate like the top of the water. The least little breeze causes ripples. We're not saved by our feelings. We're saved by our faith in the promise of God who says, I've fixed it. I've fixed it. He's fixed it for you. Now you have two choices. He died for you. He rose from the dead for you. He's come to save you. He's come to forgive you. He's come to give you life now and and eternal life forever. That's his promise. You have two choices. Believe him or disbelieve him. I pray you will say irrespective of feeling present or absent I take him at his word. I believe. Will you do that today? If you've never done that, will you do that today? If you know him as your savior, do you belong to his church? If not this one, do you belong somewhere else? Do you go there? Do you feel at home there? Is that your home, church home? If you're away from home, living here, now in San Antonio, looking for a church home, we invite you. It be a privilege and pleasure and honor and encouragement to have you as a part of this fellowship. So it's either yes or no, isn't it, for each of us, believe or not, yes or no, I will or I won't. I pray you will for your sake and for his glory. I'll be here to greet you. Let's stand and sing.